Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know, we have three different types of podcasts. There's a seminar series where we provide opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. There's our 10-minute lesson series, which aims to educate and inform listeners on particular areas of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. And there's our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This week is one of those. Space Engagers are a research and co-design collective who are on a mission to make our towns and cities more resilient and sustainable. They collaborate with others to address complex challenges right across Europe. Their collective includes citizen engagement specialists, urban planners and architects, and they use research, citizen engagement and co-design tools and processes. Dr. Madeleine Lyes specializes in policy-oriented research and community engagement with a background in critical urbanism, and she's a founder of City Intersections, which is an urban forum for public engagement around issues facing Dublin City. She chats to me about the interesting work of space engagers, previous projects, up and coming projects, and the importance of and challenges of citizen engagement and public participation in Ireland today. We hope you enjoy it. First of all, thank you so much for your time. And space engagers, I do need to say it's a great name. It's for you to tell me what it is that you do in Space Engagers. I suppose I could give you the, the snappy tagline sort of version and then you can tell me if it makes any sense. Like, So Space Engagers is a collective of people. It's a not-for-profit social enterprise. And we do projects that are based around research, citizen engagement and co-design, particularly focused on projects that are about making towns and cities more resilient and sustainable. So we kind of be a collective of people who might be from an an architecture background, urban planning or citizen engagement or research. We're a fun group. That really resonates. Everything is joined up. So you do need people from different disciplines to come together Mm -hmm. to discuss spaces. So it can't just be architects because sometimes you, you go around and you look at a building and you think, okay, the person who designed that doesn't live anywhere near it because if they did it wouldn't look that ugly (laughs) yeah or they haven't factored in people in wheelchairs they haven't factored in double buggies they haven't factored in people using walkers or anything like that so it's important to have lots of different voices in the room when you're Mm -hmm. looking at the spaces that we use yes yeah absolutely so I think we're kind of in the middle of a change in the way that we are approaching those kinds of projects and and my work I suppose is a small part of that we kind of recognize I suppose that just what you were saying that there are far too many projects out there that are either done badly or started well and then get totally derailed because there isn't proper work done to help the people who live in that particular space be part of the project and so that can kind of mess things up on all kinds of levels because you can get yeah spaces that just don't work for the people who live there and look let's be clear sometimes the people building them don't care whether they work for the people who live there or not but that's its own problem or space big projects kind of get moving and then local people get involved and say no this is not 
going to work for us and, you know, have legitimate problems with what's happening. And if they'd only been involved in the way that the project was getting put together and designed and conceived, then, you know, the whole process would be much smoother anyway. So we're beginning to kind of have changes in particularly a kind of local government level and national level now in building projects or spatial projects that are changing approaches. So for a long time, there would have been rules and regulations around consultation where you'd kind of get through most of the project and you'd have to do somewhere towards the end, you know, a quick survey or there are all these kinds of elements built into, say, the planning process and things like that. Now there's a bit of a recognition that you have to at least try to expand how you talk to the people affected by the project. And that's kind of the really basic important change that needs to kick off is is expanding access and inclusion for different people to be part of, particularly those big infrastructure projects that are happening across Ireland now. But it's really only a first step. I mean, the big change that really I think needs to happen is a recognition on a deeper level that Irish communities and communities wherever have their own level of expertise about their area that needs to be part of any process and will make it way better anyway if they are involved. That's the challenging part is making sure that there's a diversity of voices heard and as well as that not forcing that level of expertise. If you live in a particular area and you know something but you're not an academic, you're not a public speaker, your your views and your input is just as valid but it's allowing the space for somebody to be able to use their own language and their own way of describing it because I'm very conscious the grassroots stuff sometimes has to be squished into as you said those consultations and it has to be forced through the funnel of committees and boards and agendas and item 1.2.1 and item (laughs) 2.3.4 that there is a challenge in that isn't there that you know making sure that as many individual voices are heard as possible but then how do you change that how do you funnel all that chaos then without losing the input yeah yeah you're absolutely right and there's loads in that how do you make sure step sort of the first part is how do you make sure that as big a range of people as possible are involved and have a chance to have their say and there are lots of different ways to try and improve the way that that's happening. And that's kind of the, a big part. The other part is what you were saying there about how do you funnel that? And something that I'm sort of coming around to, I think, is that the, even the best participation, consultation process, whatever it is, is never going to guarantee that you as a citizen mm-hmm. are going to get your way. Right? Yes. <laughs> and so all that it can be really is a really clear, fair process where everybody who has a stake in a project has a chance to be listened to as part of that project. And I suppose it's about finding ways to make sure that the the process itself does as much as it can to not just collect ideas, but to allow the community involved to speak to each other during the process and kind of come to their own sense of what might be right. And I think, you know, if we think about small examples of that in our own lives, I'm thinking about one just that's happening with me at the moment in everyday life is I live on a little road, which is a cul-de-sac for cars, but has a little laneway stretching down to a main road. And there's a few people now on the, the road with me who would be interested in 
closing that off. The classic kind of antisocial behavior, worries about what, what goes on in the laneway and all this sort of stuff. And I'm really in favor of keeping it open. And I can just see the beginnings of kind of loose conversations happening because you know, nothing to do with any formal process, but it's so interesting to kind of see it just as a resident, the beginnings of those conversations about like, well, who should decide like, and how do we come to an agreement on this and preserve neighbor relationships and all those sorts of questions. So that happens at high level all across Ireland all the time. And of course, when they're much more high stakes than that, they get much more kind of high pitched. So you look at some of the big active travel projects in Ireland recently that have had big rows around them. So stuff like the Sandy Mount Cycleway or there is one in Galway around, where was it in Galway? Salt Hill, I think, wasn't it? Salt Hill, thank you, sorry. Yeah, exactly. People have gotten really involved and there's been threats of court cases and the lot. So they can kind of go across all levels, but it's down to similar questions and issues each time, I think. Participation is a challenge in how many voices get to be heard. Do only certain voices get to be heard? Are they the voices that have learned to speak correctly? Is it the same people over and over again? Is it the same people who would have been involved regardless? There's a real challenge in getting people to participate maybe when they don't have a stake in it. So if I'm not a cyclist and I'm not going to use that space, these sort of things do impact us all eventually, I suppose. But it can be a real challenge to get people who maybe aren't wheelchair users to think about wheelchair users who aren't partially sighted to think about. I often think around here, a lot of people would park up on the pavement, so you'll you'll have quite limited access sometimes around here in terms of if you have limited mobility or a sight issue you're just going to be bumping into cars left right and center if you're not thinking that way you it doesn't it probably the people who like the people who park up aren't even they're not even being bad by saying oh it'll be grand i don't even think it's flipped on their radar that there's a an impact and that's just something as simple as parking half your car on the road and half of it on the pavement and yeah. you said when you scale up then that sort of the participation is a challenge and trying to make sure that all of those voices are heard it's that participatory citizen engagement stuff then that I find really really interesting the yeah. types of projects then that you do how do they work in with engaging people so the last couple of years has taught me so much Having to move engagement processes entirely online, I think, was a massive learning experience because you suddenly found different kinds of people attending events, participating in events, finding it easier to be part of events, and then other groups entirely disappearing, groups who you'd be used to seeing, because you're right, there are, there are almost professional consultees like there are representative bodies representative groups that will have a number of people who will always chime in for chime in for particular consultations and project co-design projects and things like that and they're so valuable and so important but that last couple of years the mixture of different kinds of engagement so on the one hand yeah, the Zoom engagement and the massive kind of learning curve there was in working out how to make those as inclusive as possible. But just seeing, like I said, different kinds of people being able to and be more comfortable joining in there. So that's sort of a new tool, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, how powerful being together and being in person became over that time. So 
my non-day job work, I'm um, chair of the Limerick Pedestrian Network here in the city. And we got involved with a couple of other groups, particularly cyclists, cycling campaigns, so other kind of active travel groups during the first lockdown. God, I can't try to remember which <laughs> one lockdown. But during the summer of 2020, basically, yeah. when there were lots of plans out there for changing the way towns and cities were working so that people could be outside together. So take, you know, a lot of those kind of putting in more cycle lanes, making more kind of public plazas where there might have been roads, stuff like that, just temporary things. And we got involved with a kind of couple of protests here in Limerick, basically because we were sort of seeing the world being upended, but the same, nothing much happening or changing here in Limerick. And so one of the things we organised was community morning, where we took over a chunk of a street, which was usually somewhere where drivers drive through just for an hour or so and invited people to come along and just be there really for the hour and sort of say, look, this is what it could be like if we change this. And people brought kids and chalk and chairs and little scooters and cups of coffee. And it was amazing. Like it caused a bit of a ruckus, which is its own issue. But the power of the personal, the being together and the way that that brought out a whole different cohort of people than any Zoom has really just taught me that it's so important to meet people where they live when it comes to engagement. And I don't mean that literally, although sometimes that's important too, but to find and be ready to use as many different tactics as you need to, to feel like you have done due diligence in bringing out as many types of people, different kinds of people as you possibly can. Sometimes, as you said, that kind of consultation process, you're still really, you're engaging with the powers that be in the space that they have created for you. You're still within that normative structure. So something like this says, well, actually, we are going to make a space for ourselves. We are going to decide. But it changed how people viewed the space and viewed community. That's very important, isn't it? That you're operating sometimes outside you're, you're looking at the structure and questioning it and then saying well does this have to be the way it is yeah like as part of a group that does both it's 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 kind of an interesting conundrum for me because we would do the odd event like that and then we do an awful lot of the official stuff too you know we fill out the consultation forms we do submissions on development plans and meet with Department of Transport officials and county officials and things like that. And so it's it's sometimes, I don't know, it's a tricky one. I don't think we've really reconciled it at all. We just kind of get on with it <laughs> and try and figure yeah. out what, what each situation needs. But it's interesting thinking about the, the official process and how... So I, a lot of the work I would do would be working alongside municipal authorities, so local authorities in Ireland, but then in other countries municipalities like the local authority effectively one of the projects that I'm involved in here in Limerick is called the city exchange project which is an energy transition project and it's a European one where seven cities are involved around Europe and Limerick and Trondheim were the two lighthouse cities so we're the sort of test beds if you like where we try out new kinds of technology and new kinds of citizen engagement to try and push forward with the transition from fossil fuel to renewables, basically. And I do some work with the municipalities in the other five cities. So they're in Estonia, the Czech Republic, 
Romania, Spain, and Bulgaria. I, what I do with those guys a lot of the time is I'm supporting this mapping tool that Space Engagers develop that is a, a collaborative GIS tool, which just collects little points of data from anyone with a cell phone, basically. So you set up a map somewhere in your city or your local area and set up a form with a series of questions, right? I work with the municipalities in the other places to set these up for themselves. And it's so interesting to see the different approaches in the different countries, which are so connected to their own cultures and their own histories. So in some places, they're really reluctant to do it because they sort of say, God, no, they hate us. (laughs) If we put this out uh, for the citizens, you know, no matter what we ask, they're just going to say mean things. (laughs) and so there's a you know those the kind of level of distance between uh, an authority and an authoritative body and the local population is still I think an important factor in Ireland as well I don't know that you know we hate our councils although the classic thing is still there I think like I remember it a lot from stuff I did in Dublin like ah the feckin' corpo you know just they'd never get anything right Um, you couldn't trust them that attitude is still really powerful and so it makes it all the more challenging in some cases for the council to stand in a room with people now and have a a kind of a neutral discussion about a particular project Um, and that just has to be grappled with but it's something that I see a lot because I would be in that room too trying to you know get conversations going it makes for fascinating watching <laughs> the time, definitely. It's interesting what you were saying about the tension between advocacy and activism. One organisation trying to, to do both, depending on what was, I suppose, what the calling was at the time, because they have very different outcomes as well, don't they? Outcomes is tricky to track in some ways. You really, as an advocacy group, a lot of the stuff you're doing is kind of long game, yeah. you know, yeah. you're really trying to just change a conversation a little bit. But it definitely can be a strange whiplash position from you could be in a meeting with council officials one week where you're trying to talk about a particular project and what it should look like. And the next week you might be in the paper getting written about as if you're, oh, I don't know, a scourge. like. <laughs> And people might be getting very cross with you. But I think we're just trying to take whatever avenues we have to to influence things. So the pedestrian network is really about advocating for better walking infrastructure and walking experiences for everyday walking in Limerick City and County. We kind of have a mixture of, yeah, kind of high level stuff and then everyday stuff and the things that I think are most powerful really are a lot of the time are ones where we can bring people together to to kind of show a body of people who care about a particular issue and and like you were saying earlier with that thing with the pavement parking I mean that that (laughs) drives me crazy crazy. (laughs) but you're right there's there's no baddies. It's not that people are evil and parking on the road specifically to make blind people bump into them. Like It's just a lack of awareness about the, the implications of these things. And you do, however, run into real clashes of power, I suppose, of discussions about what a particular city should look like, what a particular street should look like, and who should have a right to be safely and comfortably part of it. We've found in particular that 
quite powerful, well-established business positions can be the most difficult to work with, where there's a real, driven by fear, I would say, in a lot of cases, a real kind of worry that any change that removes cars in any respect will do great damage to the city and its, its prosperity. And trying to bring people together to have a different kind of vision for the city is a a long-term job. You know, it's something that we just sort of dig into and try and network our way into and try to bring as many people on board as we can. For us being pedestrian advocates rather than, say, the cycling one, I think it makes it easier sometimes. We're less, there's less of a sort of stereotype around a pedestrian group than there is around some of the cycling groups where, oh, you know, those guys in their Lycra, et cetera, et cetera, who just power around and don't care about anybody. We don't have to fight that quite so much. So I'm hoping that it makes it more feasible for us to have a say and gather people together in that way. you got to take your advantages where you can get them. <laughs> when you were talking about these participatory mapping projects, yeah. you've done them on things like vacancy energy efficiency, how do they work? And are there other examples that you'd have? So you could do one with me, say, where if you were in Limerick, for example, because we're only focused there, Mm -hmm. where a local would put together a project where they wanted to learn about some particular issue in their area. Exactly. And you use it as a tool. So it's just a quick way of gathering place-based information, right? So some of the ones that we've run with citizens in Limerick have been about tracking particular routes for kids going to school, for example. So you can have your phone with you as you go. You've got this little form to fill in and you take a photo of a particular place and say, this works or this doesn't work or here's an issue with this particular spot. And then the map shows automatically all of the the points put together, all the photos, and you can see on a map what everybody else is saying. You kind of can't hide any of it, right? It's sort of very public. There's no personal information. It's not about you as a person. It's just... Here's your observation. So it's this very light way of gathering specific pieces of information for particular citizens. There's a nice one that you can look at, I think, which is about Kings Island here in the city, particular area in Limerick City, where they were gathering ideas for how you would start using different kinds of renewable energy in the city. So this is obviously really relevant to the City Exchange project, but it was local people who organized it and who decided to even do little walks around the island and pointing out different opportunities and different places, whether it's, oh, that roof would look would work really well with a few solar panels because it's got the sun in the right position. Or look down there in the river, there's a really good spot that you could have some river turbines, for example. Or it could be about pulling down, what were the other options on there? There was wind as well was another option. And people were able to just kind of gather that stuff. And it built in a map of that area, which was all about future potential that could be looked at and used by local citizens or whoever, really, because the the information then is shared, it's public, and anyone can use it, anyone can download it, anyone can access it. Um, I am sort of thinking about 
just is you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, say, of like Dublin City Centre and the conversation around street signage and just <laughs> the volume of street signage, that something like that would work as well, that as citizens go around, that they can map well, there's four poles here beside each other and each of the poles has two things on it. Can we not look at changing how this information is shared? You do well for vacancy as well, haven't you? That, I think that's a really interesting one. Yeah, that was an early project before my time. It kicked off an, an awful lot of work on vacancy in Dublin. And Philip has done, my Space Engagers founder, Philip Crow there, has done some writing on there about strategies for vacancy and reuse and it was a big part of another project that we worked on which is around town centres in Ireland and trying to figure out why town centres in Ireland have suffered so much recently and how we might get people living back in them what are the things that are stopping that happening and what could be done to to change it and one of the things that's powerfully kind of come out of that is the recent new policy called the town centre first policy which is going to get if it's not legislated yet I think it is it's now legislation where any new development will have to show that it is not going to do any harm to the life of the town first so changing from a model where you might put the new Tesco a mile outside the town on vacant land instead you have to kind of think about how much that planning idea has damaged towns and villages across Ireland so that's kind of a big part of those discussions which is really cool and going back to the example that you were talking about there of street clutter in Dublin the nice thing about a tool like the the mapping tool is that it would it kind of gives a space to kind of collect that information so a lot of the time what we get is you get people getting cross on Twitter yeah. or something like that you know and it's really hard to gather that information or people get really angry about it for a day or two days and it goes away whereas if you can use something like this you can harness it really light you know no one has to make an awful lot of effort to do it it's just yeah. take a photo add it up and then at the end you can also you have this really nice analyzable data where you can say, okay, there are clusters here of particular problems, or these are particular ones that really bother people, or this is a problem, not just because it looks bad, but because, for example, you can't fit a buggy or a wheelchair beside it, etc. Right. So you can kind of build in with a bit of experience the, um, the kinds of questions that might draw out actionable information to make a difference. Okay, we have a vacant site levy and we have registers of vacant sites and the census and local property tax so there's lots of official ways of gathering information say on vacancy but it may or may not correlate with reality I think where my parents are in in a, in a very busy Dublin suburb they have a lot of empty houses on their road and people own them and nobody lives in them and you're kind of going wow <laughs> imagine it doesn't make sense almost being, you know, ha having an asset of that value and it just lying empty, but especially in a housing crisis, but even, even in Dublin city centre, I mean, I know some of the kind of smaller towns are bringing life back into smaller towns, but the amount of empty properties, properties that have been empty for a long time in mm -hmm. Dublin 1 and in Dublin 2, in Dublin 7 and Dublin 8, very close to the city centre, baffles me. 
absolutely baffles yeah. me. I, I don't understand how somebody can have an asset that's worth that much that on paper, because it doesn't do anything in reality in the middle of a housing crisis. It doesn't make sense. So these sort of tools allow, if, if the information is harnessed, it allows for, I suppose, real-time information to be cross-referenced with whatever is the official information is. You would hope that it would change the, the conversation. Yeah, yes, I would, I would certainly be optimistic about things like that. The issues that we have in Ireland around vacancy are so embedded in so many of our processes, statutes, regulations. It's one thing that we, we really tried to unpick a bit when we were working on the town centre project. I know that there are all kinds of changes in the works around, particularly around policy, where, yeah, those houses or those buildings are empty because they're making somebody money to stay empty, you know, and it takes a long time to challenge and change that because of our, because of our particular kinds of property laws in Ireland. And we don't have good up-to-date records of vacancy. So for the the little town centre project, one of the things that we found out when local authorities were given a bit of time and money to go out and look around and do a proper vacancy survey for those towns, because it takes a lot of work. You have to literally go and knock on the doors and look in the windows. And they were finding that some places they thought were vacant weren't. They were just in terrible condition, but someone was in them. Or that they were vacant, but that the, the reasons behind vacancy were so complicated and, you know, very varied. It could be that upgrading them is just far more than it would ever make the money back or selling them wouldn't make the money or it that house belonged to, you know, my grandmother and there's six of us and we can't decide how we do it or, you know, inheritance, all these kinds of different complicated reasons for why those houses and buildings stay empty for so so long but I do believe that there's a big push now behind changing that but if if places are standing standing open it's one thing about somewhere standing um, empty in a small town in County Waterford or County Mayo but if something is empty in Dublin one that's making someone money and that's the only reason it's that it's that way and that's what needs to change as quickly as possible I think. Very much so because it feeds into that conversation about energy efficiency, it feeds into that conversation around our carbon footprint, around the 15 minute city, it's more than just raising a few bob by updating the vacant site levy, it, it is all joined up isn't it, it's all connected. Yeah, I know that, you know, there's there's got to be a really clever process there. And I think there are pilots of things like one-stop shops where SEAI are planning to run them, I know, for example, where you could go along and find out all the different things you'd need to know to do a retrofit. Because there are, it touches on so many different aspects of law and your money and uh, your time and there, there's all these kinds of different regulations about different aspects of building and retrofit anyway and I know that for example in Limerick here we have one-stop shops as well for people in the Georgian district where they have these beautiful but very old buildings which are immensely challenging to, to retrofit and to make warm and comfortable in a renewable way so there are some really exciting new projects out there for helping people to 
get involved in these areas. And they have to, I think, be as welcoming as possible for as many different kinds of people as possible. Like one thing that hasn't really been tackled at all yet, and I don't have the answers to at all either, is how do renters get involved in the energy transition? If someone else owns your building and they're barely interested in fixing the front door or whatever, how do you get involved in changing how you use energy? How do you get empowered to make any of those kinds of changes? And obviously it has to be connected into making rental tenure more secure in the Irish context anyway, because we're so out of line with the rest of Europe in the way that we treat renters. And again, that goes back to the same bloody property laws. That's really a massive challenge. We have a big rental cohort. And if it's not going to pay back a landlord to do something like that quickly, then it's going to be tricky, especially as our market changes so that you have massive rates owning large numbers or large percentages of our rental or rental properties here in the country. Are they going to do it? Only if it suits them to do it only if they're paid to do it I think that would be my fear anyway and finding ways to help people who are renters and who want warm homes that with that that don't cost the earth is going to be a really big challenge I think something I'm kind of excited to get interested in get working on it's a huge challenge I think even for homeowners because what you're asking is make a huge financial investment but an investment implies a return however It's actually, it's a financial cost for an environmental return. And I think that's going to be the hard sell. That's going to be very, very difficult, I think, to get people on board with. So if it's going to cost me 30 or 40,000 euro to retrofit my home, I may not recoup that in cold, hard cash over the lifetime of me and my home. But obviously it needs to be done for the environment. So that's a really difficult conversation. I might just go back then to one of the things that you had said at the beginning, which links in with this, which is this tidal river turbine, different ways of supplying energy to low income households. The way energy has gone now, we really need to rethink how we consume energy and how we create energy for the grid. So I was really interested in that. Can you maybe just flesh that out a bit? Sure. So as part of the City Exchange project, one of the um, one of the experiments, if you like, that we're um, involved in is the creation and use of a river turbine here in Limerick, and it's going to go into the Shannon. So it's been designed and made by G-Kinetic, who are Limerick company here and it's it's a flow turbine so what that means is basically it generates electricity by turning at the speed of the river water right so it's a tidal turbine it doesn't if you kind of hear the word turbine i think people think of like airplane turbines that are like lashing along (laughs) this just turns really slowly in the water as the water flows through it and it generates electricity by doing that so what we're working on at the moment as G-Kinetic do a lot of the work on things like planning and foreshore licenses and what all this higher level stuff just to be able to get it in the water. It's up in Carlingford at the moment getting tested and observed by some scientists at Queen's University. What I'm involved in on a non-tech level is starting work on developing um, a renewable energy community here in Nimerick. So a renewable energy community is a kind of legal term, if you like, which is a group that comes together to own and manage 
an asset which develops renewable energy, whether it's a wind turbine or in our case, a, a river turbine, a lot of it would be wind in the Irish context so far. And they are kind of a legal entity, right? They have to kind of register and there are all these rules around what that group has to be. And those rules exist because they've been tried in places like Germany already. And they've learned from what happened there, which is that in some cases it becomes someone's business to do it. And people start making massive profits off these things. Now, the rules in Ireland are really interesting. You have to be in proximity to the to the source, whatever it might be. So in this case, it means you have to be in proximity to the turbine to be part of the community, the renewable energy community. No one can make any money off it Mm -hmm. and no one can have a full, you know, a job working on it. Mm -hmm. And so it's. If you think about that, that is a new kind of gathering for Irish people, right? It's a new kind of definition of what a community is or what it might mean. And it takes out, I'm hoping anyway, by its rules, it takes out the possibility of corruption in a lot of ways, right? No one can earn anything off it. No one can have it as their day job. And you can't fly in from France and do it for you have to live near where the where the energy is. It's a kind of Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? You kind of have to do it out of the goodness of your heart, if you like. You have to do it for your community. You get involved and you would commit to help with things like the the paperwork of it. And you have to have a really careful process of figuring out where's the energy going to go? Or if the energy goes straight to the grid, where's the money going to go? Because in the summer this year, we'll have the Microgeneration Act will come into force, which means that across Ireland now, soon, if you feed excess energy into the grid, you get paid for it. At the moment, it just it goes into the grid and, and you don't get any money for it if you generate anything excess. So mostly people just who have a solar panel use it to heat their own water and there's not much more to it. But you could, for example, stack it up, up, up and start maybe making some money from it. So this is what that's about. And I'm, I'm kind of really in the early stages of helping to a group like that to form. But it is so complicated because any place-based formation or any place-based project is going to have to engage with the reality of that place and its own history and its own strengths and its own challenges and this, the turbine is going in in Limerick, we're hoping, at a part of the Shannon, which joins two particular communities in Limerick, which are have immensely strong community resilience and community representation, but also have not a great history with authorities and the local authority and have all kinds of economic challenges for themselves, two of the most deprived areas in Ireland, economically speaking, anyway. So being part of that, it's really kind of fascinating because you're you're constantly kind of having to just try to get back to a, a basic conversations about what this could be for a future and not step around the past and not shove it over to one side, but you sort of have to acknowledge the history of the place and, and try to move on from it and, and, and trying to get people to trust that there could be something amazing happening is yeah, no, really interesting to be a part of. Disruptive, isn't it? When you had mentioned REITs earlier on that if there's an argument that states are now subject to global capital, which has turned us as citizens really into passive observers. Yeah. That's the flip of that, isn't it? So it's now turning passive observers into active citizens 
and removing that global cap it removes the state as well to a, a certain degree and it takes back ownership I thought housing would be the conversation this year after yeah after the pandemic but it's energy is now the major concern if we remove Russian oil the conversation then that leads from that it's very exciting and it's very but it's very disruptive which worries me because those are the sort of things that aren't allowed to flourish then because they are so disruptive yeah exactly so you have all these lovely high level commitments right that are about massive changes in how we generate and use electricity that on the face of it should kind of present a revolution in the way that we pay for heat and heat our homes and even connect in with our neighbours because you could be doing shared schemes much more, things like that. It is a direct challenge to the way that things have been for so long, not just in the way our energy is produced, but in the way that our society is arranged. And yeah, like you, I find it really exciting and also, yeah, quite worrying (laughs) to be kind of part of trying to make that real on the ground and trying to push back against the kind of inertia of systems that are in place to just kind of protect the way things are. That is the way it is. A couple of quotes that I had pulled out before we spoke and one is that the role of public participation is to stimulate the emergence of active citizens and help generate stronger and more cohesive communities. Really demonstrated that that is a real possibility. If the river turbine piece as that expands and as that grows, it would be really interesting to come back and have another conversation to see how that has sort of moved on as it, because it sounds really, really, really exciting. It is so cool. Yes. And yeah. I'd be happy to, fingers yeah. crossed, jeepers, that there's yeah something to talk about, because there is, there's the whole parts that are just beyond us, like that, the planning, that for sure licensing stuff is fascinating as well, believe it or not, <laughs> because <laughs> all that stuff that you were saying about the Ukraine war, Our biggest hope for renewable energy is offshore turbines, Mm -hmm. but the foreshore licensing system is a mess. And so our small, tiny little project just got told that it's going to take at least a year for that foreshore license process to happen. So you can, yeah, it's just, there's massive slowdowns as it goes along, but being involved in in the community aspect of things has been fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Madeline, thank you so much for your time. That was fascinating. I'm really, really excited for what's coming next. And it'll be just amazing whenever it goes on to be able to sort of touch base again and have another conversation about the beginning of an entirely new chapter in how we create energy, how we sell energy, how we share energy. Really exciting. Thanks so much for the chat, Susanna. Really thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.